This is Street Signals, a weekly conversation about markets and macro brought to you by State Street Global Markets. I'm your host, Tim Graff, Head of Macro Strategy for EMEA at State Street, based in London. In this week of celebrating American independence, it's an opportune time to bring the focus onto the U.S. economy. We've got a big few weeks ahead. We are on the heels of a large upward revision to U.S. GDP for the first quarter last week, and that is making all those calls for a U.S. recession this year look a little bit overblown, at the very least early. Last week, Jay Powell was also on a panel at the ECB's conference in Sintra, holding fast to the Fed's recent addition of two further rate hikes of 25 basis points in their most recent projections. We've got payrolls data coming tomorrow. We tend not to focus on a single data point on this podcast, but it does seem like labor market data is really what is going to move the dial for the Fed, for markets, for probably the rest of this year. And then, of course, we, we have the Fed meeting coming up on July 26th. We will have an episode about that with Marvin Lowe in two weeks' time, but we're going to talk a little bit about it today. Today, we have got Fred Goodwin with us. Fred writes under the byline of Mr. Risk. He likes to play devil's advocate to both his teammates and market consensus, and I think we've got some of that to come today. At the very least, we've got a good discussion to come, I think. Fred, good to chat to you. Welcome to the podcast that is now known as Street Signals. Thanks for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Let's start with this notion of recession and a U.S. recession, most specifically. Um, these probabilities I, I talked about, we have our own estimate of the probability of a U.S. recession in the next 12 months. I, I actually would note that the last reading, it's a monthly series, the last reading actually, the probability did tick down from, I think it was 61%, I think we're now down to 55%, so still a majority probability. But this is in line with some of the other recession probability metrics. They have them from Bloomberg. A couple of the, the Fed branches do them. I know the New York Fed does one that people watch. They're all saying about the same thing. There's a majority probability of a re recession in the U.S. And I think this has now become, and it's since the U.S. yield curve inverted, now become the most predicted recession probably in my career. And for good reason, because of the yield curve, a lot of the soft data are indicating this. But the Q1 data we've got actually look pretty healthy. So where do you stand in all of this? Are these prediction models ultimately all going to fall on their face and be wrong? Thanks, Tim. I'm going to start with three basic points. Uh, the first point is to appreciate the pandemic economic fog. This makes forecasting extremely difficult. It is one reason why the Fed's assessment of uncertainty around GDP, unemployment, inflation has been high for perhaps the past year or so. The second point, as you mentioned, it is the most anticipated recession ever, thanks to the yield curve inversion. The problem with the yield curve is that it is 100% accurate, but the <laughs> lags between the recession signal and the actual start of the recession are highly uncertain. So most of the year, I was fighting against the notion that we'd, we would the equity market return to the October 22 lows, uh, and and the notion of a recession, I was clearly in the uh, uh, in the soft landing view. The reasons for changing to a recession call are because things seem to be uh, more concerning to me. One is the excess savings that's been talked about as running out, uh, the impact of refinancing mortgages at very low levels, which uh, help boost consumer balance sheets, is largely played out. We have the possible end of the moratorium on student debt payments, which is likely to hit in Q4. 
But most importantly, and what I really want to uh, discuss is the labor market is uh, much weaker than it might appear in my view. And why would you say that, Fred? Let's jump ahead then and talk about the payroll data that we've got coming out tomorrow. We've had non-farm payroll surprise to the upside for at least the last year, every single monthly print. I can't remember if it's 14 or 15, however many consecutive months. People have consistently called this wrong. And actually, the expectations for the number tomorrow are pretty modest. I mean, they're still decent labor market growth expected of 200,000 jobs, I think is the the last uh, estimate that I saw as far as a forecast and the unemployment rates to drop down to 3.6%. I mean, what makes you say that this labor market where you have as flawed as they are, say the jolts numbers, still look red hot and the job openings relative to um, the unemployed in the US economy, even if you think those job openings numbers are a little squiffy, even then, it looks pretty healthy. What makes you say that the labor market is is headed for a turn? So right now, the uh, non-farm payroll averages for the last three months is 283 jobs. Mm. So it is quite strong. At the end of 2019, it was 148,000. Um, and clearly, uh, there are some some concerning things within the labor market that, that point to weakening. For For one, if you look at the jobs plentiful versus jobs hard to get, it did improve in the last uh, survey, but it, it certainly would point to an unemployment rate north of 4%. Claims dropped 239 in the uh, last week, uh, but the survey week, it was at 265, which is the highest since October 2021. And although I agree with you, the JOLT survey, which has a 31% participation or you know, poll of people answering that, an- answering that survey is way down from the 70%. Uh, there are two things within the JOLT survey that are interesting to note, which is the hires rate and the quits rate, which arguably are a better measure than the job openings because there can be double counting in that. And both of those uh, indicators, the hires rate and quits rate, are back to where they were um, pre-pandemic. So I think the labor market is a lot weaker than the uh, non-farm uh, sort of number has been suggesting. And so where do I end up on this? I'm quite worried that tomorrow's number could be a shocker to the downside, which seems a bold call since it's been up 14. It's a surprise on the upside 14 months Mm. in a row. But um, I feel like the market is poised for a shock. And where this is really going to be important is for the probability of uh, a Fed meeting. So if I'm wrong, if it's another upside surprise, Clearly, uh, a July hike is is baked into the cake, but I I, I think that uh, it's a crucial number for the Fed. If this is a downside surprise, and even I don't know a negative number, is that impossible? No, it's not impossible. But certainly, a, a sharp downside surprise would pretty much cause a dramatic repricing of the July meeting probabilities. Yeah, I mean, it's it's now seen, and we're going to talk a little bit about what the consensus actually thinks here about everything, but, but particularly about the state of the U.S. economy and how how we respond to that consensus, and or how that consensus rather responds to, to incoming data. But you made a point that I wanted to go back to. It's it's related to the labor market, which you see as potentially weakening, but also when it comes to some of the other factors, you mentioned 
the savings from the pandemic that have been pulled down. And, and that's true. There's no, there's no denying that that flow effect maybe has a few more months to run, but you mentioned housing as well and the cost of housing finance and that mortgage refi boom starting to wane in terms of the impact it's have. Can you, can we really say that? I mean, household balance sheets are, are still in pretty decent shape and it's not to say that everybody's running out and buying a new house, but they're locked in for years given the structure of the U S mortgage market. So to me, the household balance sheet question looks fine. I think you can say something similar about the corporate balance sheet picture, other than maybe a bank like SVB, the, the balance sheet issues there, notwithstanding the corporate picture looks fine. The actual hard data as backward looking as some of this honestly, truly is it nevertheless still looks fine. What, what is it that breaks things other than this labor market weakness, which even there, I'm, I'm curious, we're talking about some fine margins, I guess. And, and is that enough to really roll things over? I think the thing that is an old thing to think about is the long and variable lags of policy. So, okay. for example, let's assume that the Fed doesn't hike two times that they're done now. And that's probably not the case. They probably, you know, most people right now as they're listening to this podcast will more or less assume that there's a couple of hikes uh, to come this year. But even if they didn't hike at all, given where the inflation forwards are over, uh, from now out to, say, next April, you're going to see real rates headed to 3%. Hmm. The problem is that there are these long and variable lags, and rates were so wrong uh, for so long and way too low that we really haven't had restrictive policy uh, until the last couple of months. So I think that that's the thing to focus in on. Do you have a sense of timing on this then? Because I think that the, the classic thinking on the long and variable lags is we are now, what, about 15 months into the, the, the Fed's hiking cycle. And so we should start to maybe be seeing some of these effects. Do you think we have to wait a little bit longer because of the pandemic data issues you mentioned? I think that's a huge factor that no matter what your take on the U.S. economy, bullish, bearish, recessionary, non-recessionary. That is a fact, is that data is extremely hard to read, and I suspect will be. But do you have a sense that the timing of the long and variable lags, or the time horizon, I guess, has changed? Or is this something that you think is is pretty imminent? I think it's very uncertain. I mean, Powell is, in some of his press conferences, has sort of pushed back on on this long and variable lags, mostly okay. because of the uncertainty about it. You know, wh how long are they? Have they shortened? Um, and we've only recently gotten restrictive policy. So I think that um, the recession uh, as a possibility is really a 2024 story, but markets um, should at some point begin to anticipate it. Of course, um, 2023 is the uh, third year of the presidential cycle, which virtually has no history of being a poor year for the equity market. So I mm. suppose we're, we're living up to the historical norm for the third year of the presidential cycle. But I think certainly by Q1 uh, and Q2 of next year, it, we're going to be seeing a more recessionary picture. Poignantly, it's right in the middle of a U.S. presidential election. So yeah. I think the economy might be one of those things people begin to think about. Well, thinking about that, then, the timing especially, I think it was late last week 
we managed to price out the possibility of a rate cut in 2023. Do you think that's right? And and do you think we need to start thinking about rate cuts more as a next year thing? Or is this perhaps something where the Fed will see enough evidence in the next couple of months that actually markets having caught up to the Fed's message on there no, being no rate hikes this year are going to be wrong yet again? I think that's a great question. I'm so glad you asked that because it's it's worth understanding the difference between the Fed forecasts and the market. The Fed forecast is a modal forecast, whereas the market is a probability weighted forecast. Mm-hmm. And the the higher you get policy rates in a real sense, the more that you have the you should increase your probability that there will be a mistake. The market's pricing is more likely to increase its gap to the, uh, the the dots forecast, the higher the real rates go. So um, we are seeing the market adjust the timing, taking out some of the rate cuts that they had in 2023, and uh, but not materially changing them down the curve. And that's just more of a timing issue. But in general, looking 12 months forward, the higher real rates go, and the more determined the Fed is to raise them, the more likely it is that you create a mistake, which means that the market's uh, rate will have to be considerably lower than the dots sort of say. Yeah. I mean, we've got 100 basis points priced in now for next year of cuts. That's all next year now, though. Do you think that's perhaps an underestimate? Given that we're talking about a lot of time here, right? That's, that's 18 months now for the cycle to finish, which we know the cycle is probably close to finished if they go once or twice, or maybe it's done now if we get this disastrous payroll number tomorrow as, as you're, you're hinting at. But let's say there's one more. But then clearly the next move after that is, is most likely, not a certainty, but most likely a cut. Does 100 basis points over the coming year do it? I mean, how much re-steepening, in other words, would you see if the Fed has to turn tail? So this is a, 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 an interesting thing to talk about because we are still in the hiking cycle. We haven't, you know, the psychology hasn't really turned to a definitive moment where markets and uh, the commentary believes that's the high of the rate cycle. So if you think about going forward, when you have a cutting cycle, there are, there are a couple of uncertainties. We we need to know kind of the starting point of the uh, the cutting cycle, i.e. the peak in Fed uh, rates. Mm-hmm. We need to know the destination of how far rates would go down, um, which will depend largely if there is just an immaculate disinflation, soft landing, but no recession, or whether you go into the darker scenario of having a recession, you will have to have negative real rates. So in no point in the forwards are there negative real rates. So if it's a recession, there's going to be a lot of movement mm. downside. And once the peak of rates is in, what you're going to see is you're going to see the disinversion of the curve really increase because there'll be more certainty that we've reached the peak and the, the market will speculate and compress in the cutting into a shorter time frame. So that's probably quite bullish the bond market if that happens. What scale of re-steepening in, say, twos, tens would you see? We're at 
just a little over 104 basis points inverted, minus 104. The curve steepness peaked after COVID at 150 basis points. It often steepens to a level much, much more than that during recessions, you know, 200, 250, 300 basis points. What scale of re-steepening do you see coming from this? Oh, that's a really hard question. I'm going to say 100 basis points easy. But, yeah, well, uh, that just gets you to flat. That only gets you to flat. I mean, surely it should go a lot more than that. And like I said earlier, I mean, the real rates are not even negative anywhere on the strip. So, you know, if you start getting into that sort of thing. But if you believe in the recession scenario, you're going to have to have negative real rates. Yeah. I wouldn't rule out 200 basis points of steepening in a scenario like that with very uncertain timing because we don't actually know when um, you know when, when the U.S. economy is going to recession, which seems very odd to talk about in a week where the data seems pretty strong, yeah, and and the and the economy seems really resilient. So I think we're really going out the speculation curve here, Tim. For sure, for sure. But look, I think that's and and that's actually something I wanted to talk about was what do you think the market's perception for the U.S. economy is? Because you have these recession probability metrics I talked about a little bit ago. And you also have an equity market that, for those who listened to the podcast last week, I had Mark Kritzman and Dave Turkington on talking about asset allocation for various economic scenarios and using the most relevant historic parallels to give you insight as to what portfolio construction should look like. And the application of that was to divide the, the economy up into various regimes. And I made the point, and I'll make it again, that the, the equity market seems to be discounting this immaculate disinflation and almost robust growth scenario. And yet at the same time, you have all these recession probability metrics that suggest it's at least still a majority probability that we have a recession. And and I'm just very confused as to what the actual perception is at this point, because it's shifted back and forth from the start of this year when everybody thought, yes, a recession is, is surely coming for the U.S. by the end of this year. And we keep getting decent earnings from corporates. We keep getting the resilient data. You mentioned U.S. economic surprises relative to a G10 average keep climbing and climbing and climbing. Who's, what is the consensus, first of all? <laughs> That's what I want to know. Well, this, this goes back to the very first point. It's that there is absolutely enormous uncertainty. And I'll just put a couple of, of sort of points on that. We have the yield curve. We've talked a lot about that today. There's another excellent uh, recession indicator from the Fed. It's called the excess bond spread. And it's absolutely not in recession territory. Um, from memory, it's around 28%. And its average for the last 40 years is like 26%. So it's not pricing in recession. So this is the, uh, the real problem for us all is that we're looking at the markets today. We're seeing better data. Equities are screaming higher. Uh, credit spreads are tightening. So all financial markets are moving away from fear of recession. And that's sort of what it's doing is it's impacting people's view of recession and they're, 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 they're sort of revising or lowering the probability of it. But until I think the real thing to watch is going to be the credit market. If the credit market starts to get worried, sees, to me, that's almost more important than uh, the yield curve or equities or other measures 
Um, that's the thing you should watch. So mm. again, the excess bond spread uh, model from the Fed is one thing that actually was why I, I was not worried about recession because I, I put a lot of weight on that model as opposed to the yield curve model. Mm-hmm. But now I've just kind of come to the full confessional and I just see the labor market <laughs> kind of coming off and, you know, all the other uh, issues around credit to the economy. And and we talk about the equity market, but as you've said to me many times, it's just like, you know, seven stocks. Yeah. <laughs> it's not really the equity market. But actually, that, that brings me to the final question, which is on the US dollar. We're talking about potential for recession, whenever that might be. None of us have a clear view. It seems like it's coming, but we don't know when. We're talking about steeper curves, which typically coincide with a weaker dollar. And the dollar, of course, has performed very well over the last few months, especially as the US resilience relative to everywhere else has has extended. But at the same time, any hard landing is also going to probably crush risk. And those seven or eight stocks that are creating all of the gains or many of the gains from equity markets potentially have downside there. And that might be a dollar positive scenario. So how do you weight the balance here for the dollar given it's expensive? Our position metrics show it as crowded. You have equity markets that are expensive and, and in certain sectors like tech, we can also say are quite crowded and maybe vulnerable. I can see it going either way, to be honest. Do you have a strong view on this? To be honest, I'm, I find the dollar to be the hardest one to call. Uh, at peak rates, the dollar does tend to fall when the yield curve begins to re-steepen. So that, that's certainly a negative. But on the other hand, if we're looking at the level of risk premium, which is very tight, vols very low, you know, across the VIX, the, the move is coming down. It's been the one that's been particularly high, even FX. You would think in a higher vol scenario, given uh, the history of a, a kind of a dollar smile framework, mm-hmm. that the dollar might get a bit of a bid in a in a risk off scenario, which I am anticipating. So I'm really sort of confused. So the way I, I've kind of gone with this halfway house view, which is that maybe initially in the risk off, we'll get a bit of a dollar strength, but that will give way to medium term dollar weakness if there's confidence the Fed cycle is over and the U.S. is headed into recession, which does seem odd because you think, well, the U.S. is kind of a safe haven place to keep your money in times of global turbulence. But the history is pretty clear that you do get uh, a softening dollar after the Fed finishes its cycle. So of all the things around the dollar, that's probably, I mean, of that we've talked about, I'm, I'm most uncertain about the dollar. With one possible exception, I think we should really be on high alert for possible intervention in dollar-yen. You started to get some comments. Uh, Bloomberg has an excellent sort of article of policymaker comments <laughs> that you can read. So there is kind of a progression. And uh, my judgment is we're, we're at DEFCON 3. Uh, and the key thing to watch here really is the speed of, of dollar yen's ascent. When it really picked up uh, last year when they intervened, it was because the speed of the move higher was something that was alarming to them. So, you know, I don't think they really want a strong yen. This is their real chance to escape deflation. So I don't mm. think they want to be too quick to uh, either change policy or, or sort of restrict 
the weakness of the yen. But they would do if it got sort of chaotic. Fair enough. Fred, I think we have to call it there. It's been a broad brush overview but at the same time, we've gotten into a lot of the nitty gritty. It's always good to get your perspective on these things. This was a much more balanced Mr. Risk, I felt, this week than than other fire-breathing episodes we've done in the past. So I appreciate that. And I appreciate you being on this week. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of Street Signals from the research team at State Street Global Markets. This podcast and all of our research can be found at our web portal, Insights. There, you'll be able to find all of our latest thinking on macroeconomics and markets, where we leverage our deep experience in research on investor behavior, inflation, risk, and media sentiment, all of which goes into building an award-winning strategy product. If you're a client of State Street, hit us up there at globalmarkets.statestreet.com. We'll see you next time. This communication is provided by State Street Bank and Trust Company, hereafter referred to as State Street, and is for informational purposes only, and is not intended to suggest or recommend any transaction, investment, or investment strategy. It does not constitute investment research, nor does it purport to be comprehensive or intended to replace the exercise of an investor's own careful, independent review and judgment regarding any investment decision. This communication and the information herein does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities or any financial instrument nor is it intended to constitute a binding contractual arrangement or commitment by State Street of any kind. The information provided does not take into account any particular investment objectives, strategies, investment horizon, or tax status. The views expressed herein are the views of State Street as of the date specified and are subject to change without notice based on market and other conditions. The information provided herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable at the time of publication. Nonetheless, we make no representations or assurances that the information is complete or accurate, and you should not place any reliance on said information. State Street hereby disclaims any warranty and all liability, whether arising in contract, tort, or otherwise, for any losses, liabilities, damages, expenses, or costs, either direct, indirect, consequential, special, or punitive, arising from or in connection with any use of this communication and or the information herein. State Street or its affiliates may from time to time as principal or agent for its own account or for those of its clients have positions in and or actively trade in financial instruments or other products identical to or economically related to those discussed in this communication. State Street may have a commercial relationship with issuers of financial instruments or other products discussed in this communication. This communication may contain information deemed to be forward-looking statements. These statements are based on assumptions, analyses, and expectations of State Street in light of its experience and perception of historical trends, current conditions, expected future developments, and other factors it believes appropriate under the circumstances. All information is subject to change without notice. This communication or any portion hereof may not be redistributed without the prior written consent of State Street. Past performance is no guarantee of future results.